Over the past several decades, Western culture has developed an identity crisis. We have lost our sense of who we are because our understanding of truth has been altered and with it, our understanding of authority. We used to believe that truth was really knowable, that it was something we could discover and that we were responsible to change our beliefs and behaviors to align with God's truth in creation and scripture. More recently, however, we've come to believe that truth is something found within us and that by our words and imagination, we can remake reality to suit our own private desires, offering a personal interpretation of the way things are. The ensuing identity crisis has decisively impacted the church. It is a crisis rooted in the widespread loss of a comprehensive gospel, a distinctly scriptural worldview, and ultimately a failure to recognize that all of human life and thought is at root religious. That is, all human activity is a response to God's word. Welcome to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, a ministry of the Ezra Institute, where we equip current and emerging Christian cultural leaders with a biblical worldview, Christian philosophy, and cultural apologetic studies through residential training programs and print and digital resources. Hi, I'm Michael Thiessen. I'm with Dr. Joe Boot and Pastor Nate Wright. And we are going to be tackling a really important subject. We're continuing on from last week. We're continuing in the matter of family, but we're getting a little bit into a very contemporary story to address the issue. So, Nate, why don't you let our listeners know what what we're going to be tackling today? Well, like you said, Michael, we've been talking a little bit about family and just the uh, the immense need of the hour for um, Christian families to be strengthened, to be supported, to be resourced. It's one of the things that we're passionate about at the Ezra Institute, obviously. And uh, and so one of the headlines that sort of uh, caught our attention as we uh, wanted to wade into this conversation, wanting to continue to talk about um, family and and fathers. Um, is uh, a story that I, I you know, it, there's uh, confliction in my heart as I share this because uh, Alistair Begg, as some of you may have heard, uh, recently uh, has been taking a little bit of heat uh, for advising a grandmother uh, on a radio program who called in with a question, uh, advised her to attend her grandchild's transgender wedding. Uh, he even said that uh, she should attend, that she should buy them a gift, and uh, and yet make it clear he he did caveat uh, that uh, they, he de- that she doesn't disagree with the lifestyle. Um, and uh, and one of the things that stood out to us is number one, Alistair Begg has been you know a faithful Bible preacher for many many years, and uh, I don't want to necessarily detract from his uh, faithful ministry for many many years. He's been of help to me. I I love uh, I love his accent. I love his preaching. Um, and uh, I think um, many pastors have, have probably uh, used some iteration of, uh, you know, uh, the one in the middle said I could come. Um, and if you haven't seen that bit that he does uh, on Easter talking about uh, the, the thief on the cross who shows up and, uh, you know, doesn't have any answers for uh, St. Paul at the pearly gates. Um, then, uh, then just kind of says the guy in the middle said I could come and that's all I know. And it's like, it's a, it's a good bit. Uh, Alistair Begg has been a, a good pastor for a long time, but I think what this epitomizes is just the slide that we have, right? The, the descent that we have in our culture from even good faithful pastors beginning to bow to the pressure of the culture. And it seems ridiculous that somebody would say, go to the wedding buy them a wedding or buy them a gift and uh but don't support it's like buying them a gift and going to the wedding uh is support and uh so this is a we look at this as an attack on the family and so we want to talk about that a little bit and uh, we also look at this as sort of bad advice from a pastoral figure uh which also highlights the need for fathers to uh, be able to um, discern these things and direct their families so i know you had some context that you wanted to add michael so um what did what, what were you thinking about when you saw this news 
Well, first of all, it was all over Twitter. Uh, Joe, I know you're excited to talk about this subject as you've been you've been commenting on this publicly. Um, a little bit of context I wanted to add is this is a common situation now. So people are going to their pastors and they are asking, which weddings should I attend? Wh which um, should I attend a, a same-sex uh, wedding? Should I attend uh, a trans wedding? Should I attend the wedding of a believer to a non-believer? Um, should I attend the wedding of two non-believers? And just a little bit of context to this is that we are seeing very specific, we, we've seen Bible college presidents, um, we've seen itinerant uh, conference speakers get up and say, well, look, if it's the case that we've, we've now identified them as non-believers, then there's a case for trying to keep the relationship assuming that they know that I do not approve of the marriage. And I am, I am reading a summary of, a, of, a, of an email dialogue I have had with a contemporary leader in this past year. And so this is an ongoing issue, so I'm glad we are addressing it. And I wanted to direct our conversation so that we're very, uh, we're not sloppy about it, very, very uh, focused on it. I wanted to go to you, Joe, and, and can we start talking about the nature of a wedding it, you know, it's creational design. What is it to go to a wedding? And then the nature of a witness at a wedding. I, I think it's very important. And this is where, this is where people are saying it's such a common thing to go to a wedding. Uh, I dare say it's a neutral thing. They're not, hmm. they're it's not like going to the grocery store and down the aisle is someone who is dressed up in a costume and I, I get my groceries and I do or not, do not decide to confront that person. A wedding is a very unique thing. I think it would be important to start there, Joe, in talking about, you know, the structure, the creational structure and the direction of marriage. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously a, an absolutely vital issue and it, and it ties directly into this short series we're doing at the beginning of the year on the family, which is why I think the story is so relevant. A couple of things, um, just by way of pre preliminary remark, um, what Nate said I think is important is that we are, we are coming across now ministers who have otherwise been faithful in their ministry and now appear to be lost when it comes to these critical cultural questions. So they know how to preach Christ crucified. They know how to preach faith in Christ and sanctification and these rudiments of, 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 uh, of biblical faith. But somehow the application of what it truly means to follow Christ and the example of Christ in the context of a hostile culture, we seem to be falling down. And we have spoken many times, of course, on this program about the problem of pietism, uh, uh, the problem of quietism and retreatism, but also the fact that as the pressure increases within our culture, the basic desire that we have as human beings, it's, it's inescapable, really, is we, we don't want to be marginalized. We don't want to be ostracized. We don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to confront social ostracism, which for some people is almost the worst kind of punishment you can inflict on them. I mean, that's one of the reasons we send people to jail um, uh, is the idea of isolation from the community. It's seen as a kind of punishment. And therefore, Christians don't want to live in, for the most part, they don't want to live a living punishment. They don't want to be in prison in the context of their own culture by being marginalized and rejected. And it seems to me that a lot of some of sometimes what is even well-meaning counsel that is so badly thought through has a theological root, but also um, there, is a, there is a failure of nerve. There's a failure for us to be willing to accept the reproach which comes with naming the name of Christ. And reproach comes with the offense Reproach comes with the offense. 
and the offense is not only Christ's identity, it's the, it's the teaching of Christ. It's the example of Christ. And the only way that anybody can ever come to Christ is to go through the offense. You can't go around it. You can't go over it or under it. That's why Jesus often said, are you offended? Blessed is he who is not offended in me. Are you going to go away from me as well? He said to his closest disciples because they were offended at him. And this is where the rubber hits the road of the offense of the gospel. And we don't want to be, the natural human inclination is not to want to be marginalized and ostracized and left out. And a pretext then is often used, as Michael has alluded to it, that uh, we're missing out on opportunity for witness. Uh, We're somehow being a bad witness. We're, we're, We're not building bridges uh, amongst unbelievers if we don't do this. So let's come back to that question about witness and building bridges later in our discussion, but just beginning with the question of, of marriage. One of our fellows, Dr. Peter Jones, he says, marriage is the cosmological key to the universe. And he, what he meant by that is that the marriage, the, the two becoming one, the distinct, the distinct, uh, reality of male and female distinction that's what actually transcendence that's what holiness actually is about it's about distinction and in uh, in marriage we see the the distinct coming together as one in some respects the family gives us a picture of who god is and when god reveals himself he reveals himself as we talked about last week in covenantal terms father and son and they love one another through the uh, person of the Holy Spirit, who is the, the is the medium, the space, if you will, the personal space between Father and Son, and uh, so there is a, there is a key distinction, difference, transcendence. This is fundamental to the very idea, the biblical teaching about marriage, that then gives us a key to understanding reality. Um, we know that history begins with a wedding. Michael, you alluded to it in in Eden when God brings the bride to uh, her husband. And that is what is what we see in the garden is recapitulated every time somebody gets married when the father of the bride brings the daughter to um, the husband-to-be, and they are, they're married. History then ends, of course. History, biblical history is bookended by a marriage celebration. Christ is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. Israel is is the unfaithful spouse, uh, the unfaithful wife. So uh, the whole of Scripture um, builds its message around the covenantal idea of family. The church is the household of faith, the family of God. Qualifications for leadership within it as fathers is um, for eldership is familial qualification. And so um, uh, marriage itself tells us something vital about the very nature of reality, about the, about the biblical story of history in its beginning and its ending. And it teaches us the most basic reality of distinction, of transcendence, um, of difference. Hetero over against homo, same, hetero difference. And so... Um, without distinctions, when this basic distinction goes, every other distinction is completely up for grabs, and that's what we're now seeing. And so when Michael asks, what is then the the, the nature of uh, a wedding? It's a creational ordinance, isn't it? It is, it is God's ordinance, and it's a creational ordinance. Um, and, and that is to say that when when a Muslim gets married, or a Hindu gets married, or a non-believer, uh, an unbeliever of any description gets married, it's still a marriage. If it's a man and a woman, it's God's ordinance, and it's a marriage, and any oath that is taken is an oath before the living God, whether those people recognize the living God or not, because it's God's ordinance, and it's his creation ordinance. And so... Um, in, in a sense, we, we, we would say that although in the broadest sense, 
marriage is a biblical thing. Um, by, by that, we mean it's a creational thing. We don't mean it's only for Christians. Marriage isn't only for Christians. Poor, um, uh, and, and marriages occurred, of course, and have occurred throughout the pagan world since time immemorial. And so a wedding is the coming together of a man and a woman in the permanent bond. And uh, it is God's ordinance. It's a creation ordinance. And it's honorable. It's an honorable estate. It's to be respected by all. That's marriage. So when you ask what is a witness to the marriage, and I think this probably comes to the heart of the issue with the article that we can interact on now, the the issue of a witness is that when I go to a wedding or you go to a wedding, it's not just a party. It's not just free dinner, um, you know, and 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 a couple of um, crystal uh, glasses and a vase and a tea towel. When when you go to a wedding, you are you are participating in a recapitulation of what God did in Eden. You are witnessing a creation ordinance and an oath. You as as a community, because wedding is a community thing, that's why it has witnesses. It's about the public testimony to the society that these two people are now married and the, the sanctity of their home and of their marriage is to be respected and honored. And we bear witness to the oath and covenant they're making today with each other. And when I go and I celebrate that with them and I and I bear witness to it, I put my stamp of approval upon it and I say, I recognize this as a member of this community to support this union and protect this union and celebrate with this couple this union. Ultimately, why? Because from a Christian standpoint, it says something about God and the nature of created reality, the nature of biblical history, and the very relationship that God has with human beings. That is going on whenever you attend a wedding. Now, when you recognize that that is what is actually happening, that's what you're bearing witness to. That's what you're putting your stamp of approval on. If you then say that this can be, this ceremony can be basically between any two creatures, I mean, what if I show up with my Labrador? People are doing that. This is how absurd it's getting. People are showing up with horses to get married to a horse. If I show up with four women and a man, where's the logical stopping point in any of this? Talking about if two men show up or two so-called trans people show up, these aren't marriages by definition. This is not a marriage. This is not so Joe, a wedding. And so I want to jump in on that because that that is that's the limits. That's the limitation. It, you you would not show up to any type of ceremony that was celebrating an an unethical or immoral relationship. So we would not show up. If, like you just said, someone wanted to marry an animal or a 60-year-old wanted to marry a seven-year-old or um, if um, if there's a, a situation where it's a, a man and a woman, but we know, we know exclu uh, specifically that he's abusing her. You know, if it was a, a, a guy and a girl and you would show up to the wedding and you you knew that in the week before he had beaten her and he had thrown her down the stairs you would not go and say be wed you would you would actually put a stop to it and of course we historically have had a section in the marital ceremony that says if anyone uh, opposes this union speak now or forever hold your peace and that's for the that was literally for the purpose of somebody sitting there going there's a problem here and and Joe this is where I want to make the logical connection to this I want to keep I want to keep on this road and and Nate jump in off of this but I I want to keep on this road of this logical connection where does it stop so Joe I know that I know that you've said you know it would be like saying I want to keep the relationship I want to be encouraging so I'm going to hold their hand during an abortion. Um, it would be like um, saying, hey, look, a, a gang initiation is a really cool ceremony 
I, I disagree that in order to be initiated into this gang that my grandson's going to rob a senior citizen as the initiation process, but I'm going to go to the gang initiation and watch my grandson beat up a, a homeless person or rob someone after a convenience store because it, I want to keep the relationship. Um, how about How about a hazing ceremony for... Uh, young athletes, you know, um, hey, I know that my my child's going to be forced to do this kind of immoral sexual behavior, and so, but I don't want to. I don't want to say to them, "Don't do it," and and I don't want to be outside of their life. So yeah, I'm going to show up to this hazing event, and it goes even so far to say as showing up to a false trial where you, as a witness, just bear false witness. You you literally attend a kangaroo court. You nod your head, you go back home. In all of these ways, the average Christian would just say to themselves, that's ludicrous, that's ridiculous. And Joe, you nailed it right on the head at the very beginning that this has to do with nerve. I'm making the point that this is obvious and and every Christian who believes in scripture knows this readily and they are now asking for permission to break such an obvious, clear understanding of Scripture and the world, because they, they they don't want to they don't want to be that person who confronts the individual. It's it's just utterly uncreational. It's inconsistent philosophically. It's inconsistent theologically. You're bearing false witness. And in all of these situations, we would we you don't go to your pastor and say, "Hey, Pastor Nate, um, the youth group this week. Uh, we heard that the youth group has decided to have like a really big orgy. Uh, and but I don't want to pull my kids from the youth group, so I'm going to show <laughs> up as a parent. Um, like that's just that just doesn't never happen to you, Nate, because we know that this is as, as dark as it gets. Yeah. Well, um, I want to bring Nate in because he's sat patiently and quietly. Um, I think you make an important point that, um, especially when you said that this is about bearing false testimony. In the, the fundamental question here, and let's stick to the marriage example, notwithstanding some of those rather colorful illustrations, Michael, um, that specifically the marriage, <laughs> the marriage issue um, uh, the question becomes in the Bible, does God require us to take sides with him and his law or with our friends and family? What does God require? Does he require us to take sides with him and his law word? Or does he require us to take sides with our friends and family in their sin, apostasy and rebellion? Which of those two is being a good witness? And that ultimately here is uh, is the question, because any Christian who's read their Bibles knows what a marriage constitutes. These aren't marriages by any biblical definition. Like you say, Michael, if, if a man uh, is 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 trying to marry three women and one of them is his, his uh, daughter-in-law, what are we going to go? Are we going to support that? We know what marriage is, what it's, what's legitimate according to the Lord Jesus, and what isn't. And uh, I saw a leader of the an evangelical movement in in Canada trying to excuse this and supporting Begg's comments and saying, "Well, you know, we go along to a wedding. We might go along to a Muslim wedding, or would you go to a wedding of a non-believer that happens in a church, or would you go along to a wedding of somebody divorced?" They're all false equivalences, all completely false equivalences. This is a creation ordinance. And God says that what you are about to go and witness and celebrate is an abomination, an abomination to God, that it's a sign of being handed over, according to Paul in Romans 1, to a depraved mind, and that those who do such things know that they are deserving of death. And they not only do them, Paul says in Romans 1, but what they approve of those who practice them. Now, what is attending and celebrating and witnessing one of these events doing other than approving 
of those who practice them, at least even if in your heart, I mean, I'm sure Alistair Begg's thinking is, well, in my mind as a Christian, in my head, this person who's getting married, in inverted commas, knows I'm a believer and I'm, that I don't really approve what I'm doing. Now, my actions are saying something completely different, but the, the, theoretically in the abstract, I don't approve. Yeah, but what are the other 300 people at the wedding thinking? They believe, as far as they're concerned, by your outward witness, that you are celebrating and approving. Can you imagine the co a context in which we would dare to say that at Cana, where Jesus performed the first miracle, that if it happened to have been a couple of Sodomites, he would have sorted the wine list? It is almost blasphemy to suggest that Christ, because don't forget, as Christians, we're Christ followers. So if we're doing something, we're saying Christ would have done it. And with this evangelical leader that I, that I engaged with on Twitter was basically arguing that, that, you know, well, Jesus sat with tax collectors and sinners as though sitting around with some politicians uh, and, and people who are sinful for, uh, uh, for a meal is the same as putting his stamp of approval on their wedding. Um, so it's because they don't understand what a marriage is like a two non-Christians or Muslims getting married is a marriage except a marriage. when they violate God's law. And then right. if it's a Muslim wedding where he's marrying four girls and one of them's his niece, then no, it's not a law for, right. it is no longer a creational marriage. Nate, you got to jump in here or Joe and I are going to, cause I, we got hours, we got hours of back and forth on this. Well, what I would say is, um, you know, the, the verse that comes to my mind is Isaiah 5, verse 20 says, What are those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter? And sometimes we think of that verse and we think of it as um, just kind of getting our ethics wrong. Um, but it's more than that. And, and you guys have both mentioned the bear false witness. So I just just to kind of um, tie a bow on that, that part of things, what I would say is that when you attend – a gay wedding, when you attend a trans wedding, when you attend any of these sorts of ceremonies that, as Michael uh, mentioned, that um, violate God's creational norm for marriage, what you're actually doing is lying about God's created world. You're, you're lying about what he has done and his creational norms. So your presence at that wedding, as Joe has said, is a validation. It's a stamp of approval but not just on that particular union, you are calling light for dark, dark for light. You're, you're calling bitter for sweet because you are saying something that is untrue of God's world. And you're saying not, not just something that's incorrect, you're actually providing the opposite, right? God has set these boundaries. We believe that God's law is the boundaries of, of, of his love. He shows this is how you are to love. And so to show up and, and put your stamp of approval is to fundamentally lie about God's created world. And, and the problem is, and, and Joe, you touched on this, is that, you know, Alistair Begg, for all of his, um, we're not going to impute improper motives to him. I'm sure he has a, a gospel, you know, motivation in terms of, well, you can go there and maybe one day at some point, you know, you'll then have access to share the gospel with them. And the first thing that I would say is, as you kind of alluded to, you have the wrong audience in mind, right? Our witness is primarily to God's created world, his creational norms to him himself, not a witness to the outside community. And the greatest witness a Christian can ever be is to tell the truth about God and the world that he's placed us in. But on top of that, like you, you mentioned, Joe, that it's, you know, in your head, you might know why you're there and you might be able to parse things out, but to every other person there, and this is this is the fundamental problem with all of it, because if Christ is Lord between your ears, if Christ is Lord intellectually in your mind, but it never uh, lands in the world around you, like this is the fundamental problem with Christianity around the world today. And this is why I can say Alistair Begg can preach a, a fantastic substitutionary atonement sermon but still get the gospel wrong because where he struggles is the real world implications of that gospel. If you can say in your head, Christ is Lord, he is my savior, and then go and attend a gay wedding, you have misunderstood what Christ is Lord actually means because it doesn't land anywhere around you.
I want to I want to comment on that Nate in two ways by quoting Beg's words. So first of all, um, Beg asks this question: Does your grandson understand that your belief in Jesus makes it such that you can't countenance in any affirming way the choices that he has made in life? The grandmother answers yes. Okay, well let's just. Number one, I think it's the European using big words and botching it up for the simple American because he uses you can't countenance. Uh, and yes, Joe, that is a jab directly at you. But I'm not European. Look, look I'm British. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair, fair enough. Uh, episode. Uh, offense given and offense taken. Uh, um so, so basically he's saying in any affirming way, and, and anybody who's thinking goes, uh, Alistair, any affirming way, meaning you can't in and you can't affirm this by witnessing it. But then he goes on to say, and this goes to that yeah, right. And so this this goes to our, our point here where we're talking about witness. And and this is where this is where he beg makes a key error that so many evangelicals are making today. He says this, well, here's the thing, your love for them may catch them off guard, but your absence will simply reinforce the fact that they, that they said, these people are what I always thought, judgmental, critical, unprepared to countenance anything. And so here again, when we're coming to the witness, and this is going to what you were saying, Nate, and, and Joe, I know you want to jump in here. What you were saying, Nate, was the most important thing to do is to give witness to God and the truth about God truthfully to other people. And what Beg is doing right here is saying the real judge in the matter that we should be concerned about is these pagans who have who are literally in, as Joe said, like an, a, a relationship that is an abomination, like it it has it has all of the decay and physical harm and problems of a deplorable relationship and and beg is saying it's those people that should be pleased by your actions right now and maybe you'll catch them off guard by showing up it, it's the wrong starting point it's the opposite yeah. of what you just described Nate go ahead mm -hmm. Joe exactly that relates to the the thing I mentioned earlier, who are we trying to please here? Is is my obligation to please God? And I think that what, you know, we saw this during the whole COVID era, didn't we, as well, which about about what it was to be a good witness. And that, you know, if you resisted uh, the iron fist of the state uh, and its lawlessness, um, while you were being a bad witness. And so, Michael, as you said, this is the argument we hear almost endlessly now from evangelicals. Love is made into this elastic panacea that basically is abstracted. We take the word love, we lift it out of the Bible up into this abstract realm, we redefine love up here, and then we drop it back down again and invest the biblical idea of love with a completely new meaning, which is now don't judge, uh, um, uh, make sure that everybody likes you and doesn't think you're judgmental. This is absolutely absurd, and this removes the central reality of the preaching of the gospel, which is a stumbling block to the Jew. It's foolishness to the Greek, to the pagan. Uh, it is an offense. It's an offense. And when are we going to get it through our thick heads in the evangelical community that to follow Christ is to stat to, to is to to name the name of Christ is to bear his reproach we cannot be be part of the glory of his resurrection unless we fellowship in his sufferings as the unique character of christian suffering is not that look everybody gets ill uh everybody has the chance of possibility of losing their job or facing family crisis and so on. Th those are the trials that are common to human beings. What then is Christian suffering? Christian suffering is that we suffer reproach for the truth, that we actually have to endure uh, 
reproach and suffering because of the truth. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, in that passage that is read at most weddings or many weddings still today, where he's talking about love. When Paul speaks about love, he says, love does not rejoice. In 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So this idea that we can set love and justice, love and truth somehow in opposition to one another, and only when you are compromising the truth, only when when you are putting the truth to one side are you actually being loving. Paul says the opposite is the case. In fact, in, in Romans, um, Paul says that, that love is the fulfillment of the law. Love does no wrong to its neighbor. After citing a number of the commands from the Decalogue, he says, for love is the fulfillment of the law. If you want to know what love is, it's being obedient to the law word of God. So as you say, we've got to get the audience right. And when you were speaking, I thought about this, in, I think in the Berg article there, he talks about building bridges. That this is again about bridge building. It's like, but Alistair, you cannot build bridges if you blow up God's lumber. Like the lumber that we need to build the bridge is the word of God. And you've just dynamited the lumber. The truth of the word is ultimately what builds the bridge. And we cannot, uh, we cannot enable people to uh, evade. It's impossible for us to make the gospel something that evades the possibility of offense. You either believe or you take offense. That is the nature of the gospel. And the gospel, as we've said before many times on the show, is about Jesus Christ, his lordship, his word, his kingdom, his salvation. And that is an offense. Right? It is the savor of death to those that are perishing. And we have become obsessed with the idea that if we just get our technique right, if we just build particular kinds of bridges by pretending these things aren't in the way, as though God never said anything about marriage, uh, as though Jesus hasn't dealt with the marriage issue once and for all, that somehow we can spare people going th through the offense. But you cannot. You either believe or you take offense. That's what it was for Jesus. And he says, the servant is not greater than his master. They hated me. They're going to hate you as well. If you cannot endure the hatred of the world for standing with and for Christ, you cannot be a Christian, period. I think one of the verses that comes to my mind as well is Jesus actually says, and this is this is sort of this, this condemnation that I see, whether it's Alistair Begg or any of these pastors who sort of begin to soft pedal uh, and, and water things down when it when the word of God begins to collide with the uh, the cultural mores. And I think that um, what happens is we forget that Jesus very distinctly said, be weary when all men speak well of you. Yeah. And yet there's such a desire to have all men speak well of us, including the sodomites, including, you know, the trans community and in in, including whatever. And so and Jesus actually came and he said, you know, if your reputation is really good, you should probably reestablish a few things because you're probably not doing it right. And, and so I, I like what you said there. It is either believe or offense. And I think this comes back to one of the themes I think we've talked about several times is. It's, it is bearing false witness. So we've talked about that in terms of the presence at the gay wedding. But, but when we cave on any of these issues, when we, when we begin to um, accept and, and sort of wink at sin, what we're actually doing is lying to the world about the character of God. Right. As, as Christians, we are to be a kingdom of priests. Priests are there to, to show the world what God is like, to mediate, right, so to speak, to, to point to the one true mediator. But the reality is, is that we are supposed to show the world what God is like. And so I, I loved what you said there, Joe. I think that was a, a really concise way of saying that we sort of we take love and like a Trojan horse, we fill it up with all these um, these false worldly ideas. And then we, the, we put it back in its biblical context and we say things like God is love. So therefore, he would go to a gay wedding, which is blasphemous because 
not only is God love, but when, when scripture says that God is love, it doesn't mean that God is the most loving or God has the most love. It means that what is the standard of love is God himself, that he is yeah. the standard of love. And scripture also says he is holy, not just holy, but holy, 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 right? Set apart from all creation, unstained by the sin of the world. He is the judge, right? He is the he is the the just and the justifier. And so you look at those those kinds of things. We can't, as you say, um, kind of fill up our ideas of love and, and recapitulate them, put them back into the biblical paradigm. God is love, meaning he is the standard of love. And you're actually lying about who God is and what his character is like when you fail to call sin, sin, when you fail to call up, up and bitter, bitter. Yeah. You know, we've mentioned a few words earlier. We've mentioned, and, and Nate, you just mentioned it again, uh, the concept of blasphemy. And then, Joe, you talked about false equivalencies. And so I think this is a really important category just to stay on to help people, uh, you know, peel back the onion on it. So what I want to draw our attention to is the syncretism and actual idolatry that's creeping into the church that is actually blasphemous simply because we 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 don't want to be offensive and and let me give an example so we started this conversation with well you'd attend a hindu wedding or you'd attend a muslim wedding wouldn't you why wouldn't you attend this wedding and I, i've been thinking this whole time would i attend a muslim wedding or or would i attend a hindu wedding and i think if i as a pastor immediately said yes with zero thought like a, an appropriate question if i had hindu friends that are living down the street say to me, I, I want you to come to my wedding. I think an appropriate question is, is are, are there, are there any references to your gods? Like, hmm. like are, are, will I be inadvertently participating in worship to your gods? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, I can't go to your wedding. You guys, uh, when you're back from the honeymoon, come on over for dinner and I cannot involve myself in idolatry, but we want you there. Okay, great opportunity. How about you repent of your sin, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and let's not make this a Hindu wedding. Let's make this a Christian wedding. But, you know, a Muslim wedding, would I just go without asking any questions as to the ceremony that I'm getting involved in? And so when these, in the, when these evangelicals quickly say to us these false equivalencies, so first of all, they're not even apples to apples and oranges to oranges. We can go to lots of weddings of people getting married who aren't Christians. But in this context, when they so quickly, just so quickly say, well, you'd go to that one and you'd go to that one and you'd go to that one with no thought, what it's revealing is the syncretism and idolatry that's really creeping its way into the church. It's just such a, such a quick go along with the pagan mm -hmm. uh, th that it's revealing actually the danger of syncretism and idolatry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great that's that's a great point. I think we've we we are at a stage where, as believers, we have to think through very very carefully uh, what we do attend and don't attend. It's true that Paul says, you know, you can't take yourself out of the world. Uh, so when he says, you know, don't associate with the immoral, he's specifically talking about those in the church because you can't possibly bear witness to a non to any non believers if you can't ever associate with anybody who's who's in the grip of sin. Um, Paul is specifically thinking about the purity of the church. Um, so none of us are saying that uh, that um, we can take ourselves out of the world, quite the contrary, but we have to think through the meaning of social, civic, and cultural events. That's absolutely true, and we have to do so from a biblical worldview standpoint, a scriptural life view. And, and going back to Nate's point earlier, I think this is really... Uh, a huge part of the challenge now is that you can have preachers and evangelical teachers who can give you an exposition of biblical sanctification from a theoretical, theoretical, theological point of view, but they actually do not have a developed Christian world and life view applicable to culture. They're, they, they, it's, it's something that exists for them in their heart, but there's no repetition uh, there's no, it doesn't get externalized and then applied culturally 
it because the connecting points are not there. It's like uh, an illustration I often use, as you know, with the with the young people, um, is of the the idea of a of, of an engine, a powerful engine. The, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's like this super powerful V eight engine, but unless you have a transmission, uh, that will not move the car. You can rev an engine all you like, but without a transmission, without the clutch that will then engage the transmission, you will make no progress. And that's what it's like for the Christian. You can have a lot of, you can have the power of the gospel locked up in the engine of the gospel, but without a biblical worldview transmission, without a scriptural life view, it doesn't tr tr uh, translate into actual kingdom life um, in the world. And one of the ways this expresses itself, which came to my mind, Michael, when you were speaking about blasphemy, is that because we have pushed God's law out of sight and out of mind, this is the law, remember, that Jesus used to defeat the temptation of Satan. The law that Jesus expounded as the greater Moses when he went up onto the mountain. The law that he said, unless you um, uh, teach and do this law, you can't be great in the kingdom of heaven. That's the essence of what he says there in Matthew 5. This same Jesus, who is the truly obedient son, um, the, 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 the word that he speaks to us in his law has been so put out of sight and out of mind that we don't even think anymore about what God says in his law about these sexual acts, what his law says about what the appropriate punishments are for these acts. If we did, if we even contemplated for a moment how God's law regards these acts, would we countenance celebrating them and buying a gift to, 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 to celebrate and endorse uh, what God has said about these things? Because we don't apply God's law word culturally, we don't think about its implication culturally. Therefore, we're not living in light of the guidance of God's law when it comes to these issues. And so it's like an arbitrary turkey shoot. Oh, somebody comes to me as a pastor. Should I go to this? Should I go to that? Oh, I don't know. Do you want to build a bridge? Do you want to maintain the relationship? Uh, sure. Well, yeah, go along, buy a gift. Um, that shows a complete lack of attention to the law word of God and its application to life. So it becomes part of the antinomianism that is afflicting the church today. Yeah. One of the things that I, I would encourage some of our listeners to think about is, um, let's say that this uh, trans couple um, that's the grandchildren or granddaughter of uh, um, this grandmother who asked Alistair Begg. Now, now imagine we serve a God who uh, saves and saves to the uttermost. Imagine if God's grace uh, invaded, you know, like Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 4 says, the God who said, let there be light. If God would shine gospel light into these lost trans individuals' lives and radically saved them. Imagine how they would look back at this advice and mm -hmm. think, you know, let's say that happened five years down the road and, uh, and these individuals were actually regenerated, actually given the heart of flesh, the heart of stone taken out, and they come to grips with their sin and repent and believe the gospel. And then they look back. I believe that they would look back and think that the witness that we were so worried about was absolutely the wrong witness and that we weren't mm -hmm. truly loving them at all by allowing them to stay in their sin and in their filth. All of this presupposes that God is not going to do God's work of saving people. That's right. But if he is, right, if he is, then all of this becomes an exercise in how we can keep non-believers happy and away from the foot of the cross. Which, and so I would encourage... Yeah. That's an, that's ahead, a, just a super, super quick to, and go, go immediately back to you. Isn't it astonishing that ostensibly reformed people who believe in the sovereignty yeah. of God in salvation do not get that point? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, and, and what it really comes down to, and this, this kind of maybe opens up a whole can of worms. We don't want to do that at the end of our episode, but in, in reality, you know, 
if we don't believe in the culturally transforming potency and power of the gospel, if we don't believe that the gospel is in fact powerful enough to overtake and overthrow the pagan kingdoms of the world, um, then we are sort of left with this weird place where we have to believe that the vast majority of people around us are going to hell and that's how the world is going to end. And so our optimism and I would say eschatology doesn't even factor into this. This is about my belief in the potency and the power of the gospel. Um, it it does color. It does color how we answer these kinds of questions because it it shapes the amount of faith that we can have in the potency of the gospel. Um, one of the things that I would just say as we kind of wrap this up is, um, you know, for, for, for men like Alistair Begg, you know, I, I do hope and pray that pastors with the influence of, of Alistair Begg will come to his senses. I, I still hope and pray that he can look and see some of the criticism that's coming his way and, and uh, repent of, of this bad advice and kind of uh, turn things around. Um, but, you know, I think the, the condemnation, if you will, the, uh, the, the, the judgment on uh, a guy like him who has grown up in a completely different era um, is, is hard. The hardest place, though, that this hits is young people, right? I, I think about our teenagers, and they have only known this world right? Mm-hmm. Jo- Joe and Michael and, and Alistair and people older than me can remember a world <laughs> um, when, when Christian norms really were the fabric that held society together. And, and as we've abandoned God's law and the Lordship of Christ, we're seeing society unravel. And these kinds of things are only going to get, these kinds of questions are only going to increase, not decrease. And so um, I think that's a good way as we wrap uh, this up to just uh, um, highlight our Youth Worldview Academies. Um, We have two. One of the things that we do at the Ezra Institute is we um, really emphasize in-person immersive training programs. And so we have the Worldview Youth Academy both in the U.S. and in Canada coming up this summer. Um, the, uh, the Worldview Youth Academy U.S. is in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. It's from July 12th to the 18th and in Canada and Port Colburn from July 28th to August 2nd. You can sign up for those. You can look at those on our website. Just go to theezrainstitute.com, go to the training programs, and you can find all of that. And what I would just say is um, this is a wonderful opportunity to uh, equip young people to think Christianly in all of these categories and uh, and giving a young person the gift of a worldview is um, the greatest gift that you can give them right now because we think the world is bad right now in terms of these kinds of difficult questions for us to parse through Um, it's only it's only going to get more difficult and young people bear the brunt of it and so let's equip our young people now to think christianly about these kinds of things So as we go, um, I just want to remind everyone that uh, God's word tells us that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We look forward to being with you next week. 